Amen. We're in Genesis chapter 22 this morning, and if you kind of scratch your head with that, if you were with us last Sunday, I have not forgotten about the last few verses of Genesis chapter 1, verses that deal with a man by the name of Abraham and Abimelech. Let me explain kind of what we're going to do, because we're going to kind of break from our normal pattern of just going verse by verse, finishing a chapter, moving to the next chapter. Because of the significance of the first 19 verses of Genesis chapter 22, I didn't want to rush through the last few verses of chapter 21 in order to have enough time to unpack this story of Abraham and Isaac, Mount Moriah, the significance of all of this. So instead of of feeling the need to hurry through a passage to have enough time to get to chapter 22, what we're going to do is we're going to skip a few verses at the end of 21. We, We abide in grace, so it's all good. We're going to spend this morning looking at the first 19 verses of chapter 22. Next Sunday, we'll go back, finish chapter 21, finish out chapter 22, and hopefully, Lord willing, cover all of chapter 23 before we get to another significant event that takes place in Genesis 24. So we're going to kind of throw in, throw in you a little curveball this morning. We're going to dive right into Genesis 22, uh, but we have a game plan. Stay with me. Verse 1 of Genesis 22. We read, it came to pass... After these things, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And the Lord said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now for context, it's important to point out it's been approximately 25 to 30 or so years since God had blessed Abraham and Sarah with that little bundle of joy, a baby boy they named Isaac. Meaning that as you turn to chapter 22, Abraham and Sarah, they're progressed in years. Abraham is about 130 years old, Sarah 120. Isaac, as you get into chapter 22, is pushing Somewhere around 30 years, hard to say for sure, but a lot of time has transpired between the end of 21 and the beginning of 22. Imagine for just a minute what's not relayed to us in these chapter breaks. This season of life that Abraham and Sarah have been enjoying, you've got to imagine it was radical. Not only had they settled into the land that God had promised them, that God had given to them. Not only are they enjoying peace with their neighbors, not only has there been calm in this household after Hagar and Ishmael were cast away, but Abraham and Sarah, you can imagine, for this few decades, they are just savoring, soaking up that promised son that had been given to them. The son they had waited so many years to have. After 90 long years, Sarah is relishing that opportunity to finally be a mom, to be needed, to, to, to have to selflessly care and love this miracle baby. As Isaac grows up, you can imagine Abraham is thrilled for the opportunity to tell him the history, his life back in Ur, the time they spent waiting for him to, him to come, his walk and journey with God, faith, to be able to teach his son, to impart his son 
to his son, spiritual guidance. There is no doubt that Isaac is fully aware of the supernatural uh, situation surrounding his own birth. I mean, how many kindergartners do you know who go to first day and their parents are card-carrying members of the AARP? I mean, they are old. Like, Isaac, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize, wow, uh, man, none of my friends, you know, have parents quite this old. You can imagine the awkward conversations where it's like, hey, at the playground, are those your, your great-great-grandparents? And Isaac's like, no, that's mom and dad. It's a crazy story, right? Regardless, Isaac inherits this rich spiritual legacy. Life is grand. For the first time, they're experiencing the full life that God had promised them so many years before. The life that they had originally left Ur of the Chaldeans for, the promises God had made. And while all of these things, all of these promises, had taken much longer to come to fruition than they would have expected, family planning for Abraham and Sarah didn't play out like they had hoped. But here they were, enjoying these years. There is no doubt in my mind they would not have traded anything for the time that they had been given to spend with Isaac. And it's with this context that we're told, chapter 22, verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham. Now, for starters, please understand what this word test doesn't mean. Some of your translations, if you use the, the old King James, instead of test, the word is actually tempt. Terrible translation. There's a reason the New King James switches it over to, to test versus tempt, as well as the ESV. You see, while the idea of tempting carries with it a negative connotation, to tempt someone is to entice them into disobedience, not greater obedience. This word test, it's different. The word test indicated that God was wanting to reveal something to Abraham. And note, God isn't testing Abraham so that God can ascertain some greater insight into his faith. If you go to school, if, you, if you're applying for a job, you might be given a test. And what's the purpose of that test? It's to ascertain information, but, but who to ascertain information? Well, your teacher wants to know if you've been paying attention, if you've been learning. Your, your potential employer wants to know if you actually have the chops to do the job. So in some regards, a test, it reveals things, but it reveals things for one individual via another. Understand, God is not testing Abraham so he can try to learn something about him. That's not the purpose. It's not as though there was some aspect of Abraham that God wasn't already aware of, that God didn't already know. Additionally, this test, it wasn't designed to reveal to Abraham something he didn't know about himself. You see, this test was designed to reveal something to Abraham, not about himself, but about God. This is the purpose of the test. And it's that point that is critical, it's crucial to your understanding of what's actually happening in this passage. Note, this command to take your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him as a burnt offering that test, that command, it intended to be the mechanism 
by which God was going to reveal to Abraham something that was of critical importance about himself. God wasn't trying to learn something about Abraham. God isn't trying to reveal something about Abraham to Abraham. God is trying through this test to reveal to Abraham something about himself. You see, the fundamental purpose behind this command was to create the conditions by which God was going to connect with Abraham in a much deeper, radical, more intimate way. Contrary to the cynical accusation. God did not want Abraham to actually sacrifice his son Isaac. Like God is not asking Abraham to commit murder. God is not sanctioning human sacrifices. Instead, God's appeal for Abraham. Look at the text again. Notice something. His appeal to Abraham was for Abraham to be willing to do what? Not kill not make his sacrifice, but to offer Isaac. That's a difference. To offer him as a burnt offering. God was asking Abraham to offer his son, not actually sacrifice him. It's why at the end of the story, he keeps Abraham from that actual task. In the Old Testament, and we can assume by this point that Abraham probably has his own understanding or, or he, he realizes the implications of the phrase. But a burnt offering it signified the full, con the full uh, consummation, consecration of an offering. Uh, I can say that. I, I got it out. Because the sacrifice, a burnt offering, was fully consumed. Because when you made an offering to be a burnt sacrifice... Nothing was left. Nothing remained. It was completely burned up, completely consumed. A burnt offering demonstrated, it, it conveyed a complete and total surrender to the Lord by the offerer. So offering a burnt offering signified total surrender of the offer. In a sense, the reason God was asking Abraham to offer Isaac was so that Abraham would completely surrender to the Lord the most precious thing in his life, which was no doubt this son, his only son, Isaac. And why was this so important for Abraham? Keep in mind, in Isaac rested more than just Abraham's offspring. Isaac represented more than just his heir. Isaac represented more than Abraham's hopes, more than his dreams. You see, as his only son, which is interesting because God did not acknowledge Ishmael, but Isaac represented Abraham's assurance and confidence that God was going to provide a savior for his sins. That's what made Isaac his birth supernatural, and his meaning so important. Offering Isaac, it was not just, well, this is my son, this is my heir, or, or I have these hopes and these dreams, this future for this boy. To ask Abraham to make this offering was for Abraham to hand to the Lord his assurance of salvation. Because God had promised it would be through this son that God would send a savior for sin. That's what he had placed his faith in. That's why in chapter 15 we're told it was that belief that God accounted to him for righteousness. The belief that through his son, God would provide a savior for sin. It's with this in mind, that it's not an accident, that this is the first time in the Bible 
that we find the word love. You know that. Here we are, 22 chapters into the book, not just the book of Genesis, Scripture. This is the first time we find the word love. Offer your son, your only son, son in whom you love. First time. First mention. Whereas the love that exists between a husband and wife is in and of itself profound. That's not where God decided to introduce the concept of love. We're not even told that Adam loved Eve or Eve loved Adam. Like love was never placed into that original context. You see, the law of first mention, meaning anytime you find a word introduced or first mentioned in the Bible, it's setting the context by which you should understand that word moving forward. You see, the law of first mention establishes the idea that God decided to intentionally frame our understanding of love in the context, not of a husband and a wife, but instead the context of a father's love for his son. While a husband and a wife enter into a love relationship, mainly through free will decisions each party initially makes and then chooses to remain in, a father's love for his son is totally and radically different. It is a unique experience. No father and you dads can attest, no father chooses to love his son. Instead, it's that very moment his son comes into existence that an unexplainable love instantly floods his being. You see, a father's love for his son is one of nature. It's not will. Loving a son is never something a father has to decide to do. I've been blessed with two little boys, Quincy and Theodore. And that first moment that they come out and I hold that little bundle of joy in my arms, I didn't have an experience with that kid. My contribution to his birth was very minimal. I didn't carry him for nine months. But man, immediately when that kid is born and I hold my son in my arms, I would die for that child. I would lay down my life in a heartbeat. And every dad would attest. It's something magical. It's something unexplainable. That kid has done nothing to earn my love, has done nothing to deserve my love. It's by just the very fact he's my son that I would do anything. You see, that is the context that God has decided to relay the concept of love. You know, aside from being distinct from a husband-wife love, it should also be noted that a father-son love is unique to a father-daughter or mother-son love. While the nature of the love is the same, it is a truth, right? That when a daughter marries another man or a man takes a wife, the context for how that father or that mother's love manifests automatically changes doesn't mean a father doesn't love his daughter any less, but the way that love manifests, there's now another man that's significant that has superseded your role in her life. It's totally changed. You're, a mom loves her son, but as soon as that son marries another woman, her context now changes. She's no longer, she's mama always, but she's no longer the number one woman in that son's life. Everything changes. How interesting though, that when it comes to a father-son relationship, that doesn't change even with marriage. 
that dynamic isn't applicable. When a son marries a woman, that father's love for his son, the way that love manifests, it stays the same. The context don't change. You see, unique to all other human interactions, a father's relationship with his son and the way his love for his son manifests it never changes. There's never a reason for it to change, which is significant. For of all human relationships for God to illustrate the love experienced and the triune nature of himself, his triune nature, God specifically chose to present it to mankind, to you and to I, as the love of a father for his son. He didn't choose to manifest it as a love of a father for a daughter or a mom for a son, but a dad for his boy. Like, I hope you know that the first member of the Trinity isn't actually the father of the second Jesus. Like, they're not actually father and son. Like, they're completely equal. They're completely God. You see, what's happening in Scripture is that God, these two, are presenting themselves to humanity as a father and a son for one reason, so that we can understand the true essence of this relationship within the Godhead. You see, within the Godhead exists a love for father to son, son to Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit to father, back and forth. These three members exist a love that's most similar to this father-son dynamic. It's not, it's not one of will, it's one of nature. It's automatic, it's not a choice, it exists. It's self-sacrificial and it's eternal, it never changes. You see, we're presented the Godhead as though God had an only son. Now, it's within that context of Abraham's love for his only son Isaac that God asks him now to make the ultimate offering you see, in order for Abraham to relate to this aspect of God that the Lord wanted to reveal, Abe had to first be willing to trust the future and the well-being of his son, the one thing he loved more than all others, to the will and the purposes of God. Now, before we continue, I want to go ahead and just explain, get it out there, put all the cards on the table, what aspect of his person God is wanting to communicate to Abraham through this experience, the aspect of God that this whole story is trying to convey to Abraham so they, they can connect and their communion could deepen. You see, in asking Abraham to offer his only son on a mountain in Moriah, God was illustrating to Abraham the experience that he would encounter for himself when he would choose to offer his only begotten son to die for the sins of the world. The truth is that through this exercise of offering Isaac, Abraham would come to understand firsthand a very radical thing. He would come to understand what it personally would cost God when God would offer Jesus to be the Savior for man's sins. As a father type, God would be making the ultimate sacrifice. And as the son, Jesus, would submit 
to the authority and destiny of his father. We'll see in Isaac a wonderful picture of Jesus. So it's important that you keep in mind as we work through this text that it would be through this experience of offering his only son that Abraham would end up connecting with the heart of God and in doing so come to realize how deep and awesome God's love was for him. Well, the only specific information that God provides to Abraham is that he go to the land of Moriah to, quote, one of the mountains of which I shall tell you You should note that the word Moriah literally means chosen by Jehovah. In essence, what God is saying here is he's telling Abraham to go to the land I've chosen, to a mountain I will show you. It's clear that there was a very specific place that God is wanting this entire lesson to take place for Abraham. Let's look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him. And Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. I like how this opens. We're told Abraham rose early in the morning. You think he was excited to go offer his son? (laughs) You think that it was the anticipation? I don't think he slept a wink. He's probably up all night. At some point, he gets up and he's like, enough of this. Let's get on with it. Let's do it. You know, it, it is important, though, that we give credit to where credit's due. I mean, we've, we've been rough <laughs> when it comes to Abraham. In so many instances, he, he makes a complete idiot of himself and fails royally. But in this instance, he's obedient. He does the right thing. I mean, he's been given, and I think we can all admit, an impossible set of instructions to offer his only son Isaac. And yet, don't forget, Abraham has also been given this promise, Right? that it would be through all of these things that God was going to reveal an aspect about himself. Abraham had to be obedient, but he's going to learn something about God. So he wastes no time getting up in the morning, wastes no time being obedient, rises early. He personally begins to prepare for the journey. He gets the necessary items. He even splits the wood. He recruits two young men to travel with he and Isaac, Note, Isaac's referred to in the text as the lad, which gives us an idea that he was young. It's the same word we find for young men, which is why we know he's not a little kid, but he's, he's a full-grown man. They saddle the donkey. They get, they get off. They get going. They head north to the land of Moriah. Now, where they're beginning is in an area known as Beersheba in the far south. So it takes them three days to make the journey north. We're told... by by the text, that it's on the third day that Abraham lifts his eyes and he sees the place afar off. How does he know it's the place? No clue. Something happens within his spirit. The Lord confirms it. Something takes place deep within him. He knows this is it. (laughs) Imagine, three-day journey, what that trip must have been like. Abraham's mind racing Man, imagine when he finally sees that place afar off. He knows what's coming. 
And yet, it's in this statement that Abraham makes to the young men that reveals much more is happening in his heart than what we're able to see. He tells the young men, look at the text again, hang back. Why? For he and Isaac were going to go alone in order to what? Worship. Now, what makes that fascinating is that this is also the first mention in the Bible of the word worship. So we have the first mention of love. Now we have the first mention of worship. In the Hebrew, the word we find here for worship is shakah. It means literally to bow down or prostrate oneself in homage. The context for this first mention is revealing. Were Abraham and Isaac going up to this mountain in Moriah to sing songs? Like Isaac, grab the guitar. We're going to go up and we're going to sing some songs, some tunes, sing some, some, some songs to the Lord. No. Nor, you should note, does Abraham mention that the intention is to go make an offering. He doesn't even say that, right? He doesn't mention singing songs. He doesn't even mention making an offering. He just says, me and the lad, we're going and we're going to go worship. You see, Abraham viewed his decision to obey God so that he could connect with God on a deeper level as being worship. As such, I hope you know this. Worship is more than an action before God. It's the very pursuit of God. Let me say that again because it's important. Worship is more than an action before God. It's the very pursuit of God. It's the desire to commune, to connect with God in a real and tangible way. It's why when we sing songs before the Lord, if you're just you know, trying to hit the high notes, trying to hear yourself rock and roll, like if that's not worship. You're just singing songs. But if through the words of the songs, you're trying to connect with God, you're wanting to connect, you're trying to express yourself before the Lord, that's worship. It's not the song, it's the heart. It's why what we're doing right now is equally worship. Because why are we in God's word? We worshiped in spirit, now we're worshiping in truth. Why? Because you're wanting to connect with God through the best way to do it, his word. That's why we place such an emphasis on his word. Also notice what else Abraham said to the young men. Look at it again. This, is, this blows my mind. He says, you know, we're going to go worship, and then what? We will come back to you. We. That reveals quite a bit about Abraham's internal thought process. Like on one hand, he knew he was going to offer Isaac, potentially as a burnt offering, meaning Isaac could very well die through this process. But then on the other hand, Abraham had zero doubts that Isaac was the son of promise, the son God had promised him. Abraham was confident that God would create in Isaac a nation by which he would send the Messiah. Like as a result of that, Abraham knew no matter what happened on the mountain, Isaac would live. That's kind of interesting, right? On one aspect, hey, he might die. On the other aspect, I'm confident he's going to live. Like, how do you reconcile the two? Like, for the answer, let me read you a little passage from Hebrews 11 about this very instance. We're told that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up him, 
his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Notice, he does this concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So Abraham's going up to this mountain. He's like, hey, we'll be back. Meaning, Isaac might die, but Isaac's going to live. I don't know how to reconcile that except for one thing. If he dies, God will raise him from the dead. If he dies and he's consumed as a burnt offering, meaning nothing's left but ash, God will still resurrect him from the dead because all of the promises have been placed into this kid. Keep in mind, Jesus hasn't been resurrected from the dead yet. Like Abraham is believing something would happen that has literally never, ever, ever happened before. And yet he's confident. We will come back. It should be pointed out that Abraham's decision to leave behind these two young men so that only he and Isaac would go forward alone. It's also symbolic, isn't it? The reality that Abraham and Isaac, father and son, were going to a place that no servant could ever follow. You see, what would happen on that mountain was a work that necessitated only their involvement, only their obedience, you know, in much the same way as it pertains to what this story is a picture of, the atoning work of Jesus on our behalf. You know, there's nothing that you or I, no servant, could ever contribute. Nothing we could add. Salvation is a work of only the Father and the Son. Only the Father in Jesus. Verse 6, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son. Abraham took the fire in his hand and a knife. The two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. So Abraham replies, Here I am, my son. So Isaac says, Look, the fire, the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so the two of them went together. (laughs) Pause for a second. Like, what a picture. As they're making their way up this mountain, who's carrying the wood for the sacrifice? Like Abraham split the wood, but who's now left to carry the wood? It's Isaac. Like how fascinating that Isaac, the son, is willingly choosing to carry the wood to his own place of execution. That sound familiar? You see, in John chapter 19, we read of Jesus, that then Pilate delivered him to be crucified. So they took Jesus, led him away, and he, what? Bearing his cross, went out to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. As they're making their way up this mountain, Isaac's carrying the wood. He's beginning to kind of notice maybe something is a little bit awry. He's not an idiot. He rightly understood that they were going to worship. And obviously, they were going to make an offering before the Lord. That's why he's carrying all this wood. But as he's kind of processing it, he's looking around. He's like, all right, I got the wood. Dad's got the fire. That's good. Uh, And dad also has a knife. Probably need that. But he's like, you know, 
where exactly is the sacrifice? He's, he's kind of beginning to kind of process this. He asks. He's like, yo, pops, <clears throat> um, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And notice Abraham's reply. My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now, that's terrible, tragic. Like the translation there completely butchers what Abraham's actually saying. And let me explain. In some of your translations, the word for might be in italics, meaning it's not in the text. That the word for was added to the text by the translators for the purposes of clarity. But it's not clarity they achieve, it's convoluting the message of what Abraham is actually saying. Isaac's question, hey dad, where is the lamb? What is Abraham's literal response? Remove the word for. What does Abraham say to the question, where is the lamb? God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. You get it? That's incredible. That's incredible. Like furthermore, it should be pointed out, this is the first time in the Bible that we have the word lamb. First mention, love, worship, and now lamb. The first mention of lamb in the Old Testament is Isaac asking this question, where is the lamb? What's crazy is you know the first mention of lamb in the New Testament? It's not in Matthew. It's not in Mark. It's not in Luke. Neither of them ever mentioned the word lamb. First mentioned is John chapter 1, when Jesus is approaching John the Baptist, and he boldly declares for all to hear, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Isaac asks a question, where is the Lamb? 2,500 years later, John answers, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist is answering Isaac and confirming what Abraham said, that God would provide himself the lamb. Wow. Now, while millions of lambs would be sacrificed throughout Hebrew history, the ultimate sacrifice for man's sins would not come until God provided himself as the lamb. Understand, Jesus was not a lamb. He was the lamb. It's a definitive lamb. It's particular. It's unique. It's distinct. Also notice, something interesting happens here. Following Abraham's reply to, to Isaac's question, look at verse 6. In verse 6 we're told, and the two of them went together, speaking of Abraham and Isaac. But now in verse 8, there's a little difference, right? We read, so... The two of them went together. It's a small difference, but the implications of this subtle detail is that Isaac gets it. That Isaac understands what's happening. And he went, just implies that he went with his dad. So he went means that based on Abraham's response, Isaac is now making a decision. He's willingly surrendering himself to whatever would come next, to the will of his father. And what would come next? Let's look at verse 9. So they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. 
And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. I, I just have to remind you, Isaac's not a little boy. He's a 30-year-old man. Abraham is 130, meaning he ain't a spring chicken. I mean, seriously, if you were in Isaac's sandals, at what point, at what point, right, do you kind of like take a step back and say, you know, enough's enough. Like, okay, I noticed there's not a lamb. Your reply, God will provide himself, that suffice, that's great. But, but, like, where's God making good on that? Because all I'm seeing here is, you, like, you're building the altar. Like, for me, it would have been the moment that dad goes, um, <clears throat> could you put your feet together and arms behind your back? Um, yeah, dad. Uh, for what purpose? Oh, just trust me. Okay, I'm bound. Now what? Yeah, um, I'm 130. I can't pick you up anymore. Uh, could you climb up on that, that pile of wood? Like Isaac's looking in his dad's eye and he's thinking, uh-oh. Like at what point, like to me, you know, we talk about through this story how Abraham's faith is admirable. The sacrifice, right? This offering. I gotta tell you, Isaac's faith, much more radical. The fact he goes along with it to the point that he's like, laying down on the altar, and Abraham raises up a knife. It's like, okay, time out. This has gone on far enough. But no. Like, it's astonishing to me that under the circumstances, Isaac completely trusts his father. You see, Isaac, he's not an ignorant participant. He hasn't been tricked. It's willing. He's a willing participant. Isaac has surrendered his life into the hands of his father. And once again, what a picture of Jesus, right? Did anyone take Jesus' life? No. In John 10, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay down myself. That Jesus willingly participated with the will of the Father. Verse 10, and Abraham stretches out his hand, takes the knife to slay his son, but, man, Isaac's sweating beads, right? That's a good, good moment. The angel of the Lord calls out to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. So he says, here I am. And the Lord said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. I think for starters, keep in mind, the angel of the Lord spoke. Do you notice that it's a capital A? And we've talked about this before in our travels through the book of Genesis, but who is actually speaking out of heaven? Whose words? They should be in red because it's Jesus' words. That this is another Christophany or pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. The voice saying, Abraham, Abraham, is actually Jesus. That Jesus is speaking to him, calling out. You see, there was no need for Abraham to slay Isaac. Like Abraham's obedience, 
his willingness to do what God had asked, to offer his son, that was all that was needed for him to personally connect with God and recognize the magnitude of God's love for him. That God would do the same. That God would offer his son. You see, Abraham, through the experience, he personally knew what it meant that God was willing to offer his son for his sin. Abraham could relate in a very personal way, right? To the depths of God's love for him. It's not an accident. Sure, Abraham could could have killed Isaac. He would have been resurrected. But But Jesus stopped Abraham because Isaac being being a human sack, like that wouldn't have mattered. Like it would have been a waste. Like as much as Isaac was a picture of Jesus, he wasn't Jesus. You see, Isaac was a sinful man, meaning his death would not have proven to be acceptable or successful as a sacrifice before the Lord. You see, the truth is that there's only One human sacrifice that God would not only sanction, but would accept for the atonement of sin. One death, one human death made that God would find pleasing, and it would be the death of his only son. Not an offering that we make, but an offering God made for us. The fact that God offered his son the perfect man, Jesus, to take away the sins of the world. I'm convinced that this was a point that Abraham completely understood. I think Abraham knew exactly what was going on. I think he recognized the unique voice coming out of heaven. Could it be that this is what Jesus is referring to this moment, this awakening, this realization by Abraham? You see, in John 8, Jesus said this. He said to the, to the skeptical Jews, he said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And when he saw it, he was glad. And so the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? But Jesus then said, most assuredly, I'm saying to you right now, before Abraham was, I am. And they freaked out and wanted to stone him to death because they knew what he was saying. And I think it was this moment What day did Abraham see of Jesus? I think he saw the day that on that same mount in Moriah that Jesus would die for the sins of the world. Verse 13, so Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide As it is said to this day, in the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing, I will bless you, multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore. Your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. They rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Notice something missing. So Abraham returned. Who didn't go with him? 
Isaac. Where is Isaac? Well, to answer that question, you'll have to wait till Genesis chapter 24. Because the, the picture presented here doesn't just stop at Calvary, but it continues forward into the book of Acts. And we'll get to all of that. Notice the location where all these things took place. In the Hebrew, it's Jehovah Jireh. It's the word we have. Or literally, the Lord will provide. See, Abraham understood that it would be in that very location on a mountain in the land of Moriah that we would know later as Calvary or Golgotha, that God would provide his son, Jesus, to atone for the sins of the world. And what's fascinating is in writing 600 years after the fact, Moses even confirms a national belief that, quote, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Or literally, Moses is saying, in that mountain, the Son of God would be seen, would be revealed. Now we know that the temple, the temple was built, constructed on Mount Moriah. But notice, we're not told specifically that it was Mount Moriah. We're told that it was one of the mountains in the land of Moriah. We don't know exactly what mountain it was, which is why there's a lot of mystery as to exactly where Jesus was crucified. But we do know that in that location where Abraham sets this altar and offers his son, that it was the same spot that God offered his son. Abraham recognizes it. In that spot, God will provide. The Lord will provide. And Moses affirms in that mountain, the Lord will provide. Now, in conclusion, and I'm running out of time, but I want to make just three real important points of application from this story. Great, Zach. Cool picture. Radical picture. I get it. I understand. But for me, like, give me a nugget. Like, give me something to take with me. Something that beyond, like, the macro perspective of what's happening, hit me. Well, here you go. First, though in the life of the Christian, though in your life, tests are inevitable and are designed to be revealing. Never forget what a test in your life, what the purpose is. Tests intend to reveal God to you in a more revealing and intimate way. You see, for Abraham, the purpose in offering Isaac was so that he could understand the depth of what would be required for the atonement of his sin. And therefore, the experience conveyed to him the radical nature of God's love. In your life, understand this. God doesn't test you so he can understand how far you've come. God doesn't test you so that in heaven he can be like, well, I wonder if he's got the metal to make it. Because he already knows you don't. You're a failure. I wonder if he's really learned some of these lessons. I'm going to test him again. God already knows. He knows the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He knows everything about you. He doesn't need to present a test so he can learn. Nor is he trying to reveal something to you through a test about yourself. I think that's a misconception. Once again, I don't need a test to realize I didn't study. It's like in school. Like, I, I don't need a test to know that I have no idea what the teacher has been saying for the last three weeks. Yes, 
I failed the test. I could have told you I failed it before I took it. Like, I don't need to realize that I'm inadequate and I'm not good enough. I already know that. So God sending a test my direction to just hammer home that I just can't do it. Thanks, God. See, that's not what a test is for. It's not for God to learn about you. It's not for God to reveal something about you to you. It's for God to demonstrate something about himself to you through what you're going through. <laughs> I was in Bible college years ago. I've been dating this girl, thought I was going to marry her. Three weeks before I graduated, I was like structuring my whole life around her. She dumped me. And I'll never forget, man, like it was terrible. I'm alone. I'm miles from home. By that point, like most of my friends have already left, left college. I'm alone. And I'll never forget, I was in the shower, kind of praying, more of just kind of yelling at God. And I was crying, and, and the shower's a good place for that type of cry, so the snot and the water just kind of get, goes away. You know what I'm saying. I was in this point, and I was talking to God. I was like, I can't believe you did this. I can't believe that this happened. I can't believe you let it. And then I, th these words came out of my mouth, I'll never forget it. I said, you don't know what it's like to experience this type of rejection from someone you love. And I stopped. And the shower got real cold. And I'm thinking, I'm about to die. <laughs> like, there's about to be a lightning bolt from heaven. But man, it was like holy ground, linoleum tile, whatever it was. And God... And God said, oh, really? That I don't know what it's like to be rejected by the people you love. Every day, people die rejecting the ultimate sacrifice I made because I love them by sending my only son. You, you, you want to you compare pain? But it was in that moment that, that I understood something. Why was I going through what I was going through? So that I could realize I'm an idiot? No. So that God could realize I'm an idiot? No. It was God trying to tune my heart to his. So, that, so that's what you feel. That's what you go through. That's what my sin communicates to you. That's how, if you've been cheated on, why God? God gets cheated on every day. Like whatever test you're going through, Whatever sucky situation you're facing, like what is God trying to communicate? He's trying to communicate that he knows, that he feels it. In Hebrews, we're told that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. That means that his heart resonates. It's literally the word resonates. It's like two tuning forks. If they're in the same key and I hit one over here, guess what happens to the other? It starts to ring. It feels the pain. It takes the hit as well. And that's what Jesus tests for Abraham. What was the test about? It was that God wanted to reveal himself in a deeper, more intimate, radical way. And he did. But you know, secondly, I think it's important to point out that there is only one human offering, only one human sacrifice that God accepts. It wasn't Isaac. And it's not you, it's Jesus. 
You see, the entire point of the story was not to illustrate the offerings and the sacrifices that you need to make to grow closer to God. Instead, the whole point of this story was to illustrate that your relationship with God is completely based on one offering that God would make on your behalf when he sent his only son, Jesus. That moment when God would provide himself the sacrifice. It wasn't about Abraham making an offering. It was about communicating to Abraham the offering he would make. Jesus makes this comment. He says, by myself I have sworn, because you have done this thing, have not withheld your son, your only son, blessings, I will bless you. He's reiterating a promise that he had given to Abraham long before any of this had ever happened. A promise that was not based on Abraham's performance. Abraham, before this, way before, it was told that he was righteous because he believed in a Savior. You see, Abraham's obedience wasn't the cause of God's blessing. His obedience demonstrated what? Faith in a Savior. That was the cause of God's blessings. Finally. I hope you know this this morning. One of the big lessons we take away from this passage, and I think it's somewhat controversial and even radical. I had to really chew on how to say this. God loves you more than he even loves Jesus. Like, I hope you know that. Like, that was the point. Like, we're told in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, Put your name in. For God so loved you. His love for you was so great, so vast, so deep, so radical, that he would what? Give his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Friend, you should never, ever, ever question God's love. Ever. Because God, in wanting to communicate how much he loves you, presented this picture as an illustration, but has sent his son in reality. You know, no, no, greater, no greater love, we're told, that a man would date, lay down his life for his friend, right? And, and there's some of you in this room that I would lay down my life for. Not all, I'm not going to lie to you, but there's some of you that I would do that because I love you. There are zero people in this room that I would lay down the life of my son for. I would die for some of you. None of you would I take Quincy or Theodore and lay down their life to save. And I'm just being honest. I'm just being real. I think you'd, be, you'd say the same. But not so with God. That's amazing. That is amazing. Charles Spurgeon, he wrote, so strange, so boundless was the love which pitied dying men. The father sent his equal son to give them life again. And so, Father, we just want...